do appreciate everybody being here again this evening for a period of worship, singing together, praying together, and uh, studying from God's Word together, maybe be encouraged a little bit in that way. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke again. We, this evening we looked at a passage in the book of Luke this morning, and uh, we'll look at a, di- a different passage tonight, but in the same book, the book of Luke. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I, I hesitate to use these absolute terms like always and never. There always seems to be an exception to, to, the, to, to the rule. And so I hesitate to say things like all or none uh, because there, there just seems to be so many exceptions. But the Bible doesn't hesitate to use those terms when it's appropriate. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every one, every spiritual blessing. It'd be difficult to enumerate those and list those one by one, but I think we would all agree that one of the greatest blessings that we have is the blessing of of prayer. Imagine us as weak as we are and as frail as we are and limited as we are, being able to talk to the God of the whole world, the God of the universe. And He invites us to do that. He, he asks us to go to Him with our prayers and our praise and our requests. He even instructs us to do it. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all seasons. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, really, when you think about it, that God would invite me to pray. Not only will He tolerate my prayers, He invites me to pray. He asks me to come to Him in prayer. We've been talking about prayer a little bit over the last few Sunday nights. We are looking especially at what Jesus teaches us about prayer. Now, we can learn to pray from Paul, or we can learn to pray from David, but but what does Jesus teach us about prayer? We've noted His unique relationship with the Father in Matthew 11. He says, no one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. And so they have this unique relationship, and yet Jesus uh, feels the need to pray. He uh, would often go off by Himself and pray. And so if Jesus feels the need to pray, given who He was, how much more should we feel the need to pray? And who better to learn from than someone who has a unique relationship with the Father? Who better to learn how to pray from than Christ, the Son of God. Just about everybody can pray, I think. It doesn't take a special skill, I don't suppose. Maybe a little learning, a little training. But then I think we can all pray better. Most of us would admit that, I think. I think I could do it better. I think I can uh, improve in my prayer practices. And so even though a small child can pray, There's still room for improvement, even though we may have been praying since we were small children. And so we're going to Christ, looking at His practice in prayer. We're going to look at some of His prayers. We're going to look at what He teaches us about prayer. And so we look, for example, at some of Jesus' prayer practices. And these are are some of those that we considered. Though Jesus prayed in the company of others, which, which He did, He spent much time in prayer alone. And so it's a good practice to spend time in prayer alone. And so when we are in private, nobody else around, in public worship we pray, but we pray in private as well. 
Jesus prayed often and regularly. Praying was his habit. He habitually would go off by himself and pray. We find him praying in the morning. We find him praying in the evening and may have prayed at other times as well. And so we need to develop that habit, that practice of praying multiple times a day. There may be regular times when we pray to God. We set aside particular times during the day to pray. But uh, there may be other times when we pray spontaneously as the need arises. Jesus prayed for his own needs, but he also was mindful of others in his prayer. He tells Peter, I've been praying for you. So we make our requests known to God. We pray for our own needs and our own concerns, but we also pray for others. Let me give you, if you don't know who to pray for, let me give you some suggestions. We regularly pray for those that are sick or those maybe going through surgery or those who have been injured or have some need or some uh, struggling in, in some way. If you're a parent, pray for your children. That'd be somebody good to pray for. If you're a child, pray for your parents. How about that? If you're, if you're a young person, a middle schooler, a high schooler, a college age person, pray, pray for your parents. And uh, uh, pray that they will uh, do, do well in their efforts to bring you up in the way that you need, need to go. If you're an elder, pray for the members of the church. If you're a member of a church, pray for the elders. If you're the preacher, pray for the members. If you're a member, pray for the preacher. And so those are just a few examples of people you can pray for. Jesus prayed for himself and his own needs, but he prayed for others. Jesus prayed fervently and intensely. We noted especially the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that Jesus taught us to pray in, in his name as well. Last time we talked, I guess that was last week, we looked at some of Jesus' teaching about prayer in the parables. And there, there are, we looked at a couple of parables that deal specifically with prayer. Remember the parable about the friend who went to his neighbor, or he went, a man who went to his friend at midnight. Some unexpected company had come and he didn't have enough food. And so he, at, in the middle of the night, he goes to his friend and explains the situation. And, and his friend does get up and, well, at least Jesus suggests that his friend gets up and, and gives him something even though it was rather inconvenient for him to do so. We talked about the persistent widow who had a legitimate case uh, to bring before the judge. The judge really wasn't that concerned about her, but because she went persistently and repeatedly with her concern, he decided to respond. And so from those two parables, we made these suggestions. Be persistent in prayer. And uh, Luke 18, this parable of the persistent widow is told or, or uh, related for that very purpose to the end that we ought always to pray and not to faint or not to, to give up. Note that the father answers the prayers of his children willingly. We talk about how God is like these men in the parables in some ways, but in some ways he's unlike them. And so in the parables, the men respond, Jesus, uh, God will respond, but they did so reluctantly and in that way, God is unlike those men. He does so willingly. He responds to the prayers of His children willingly. We know that our prayers never inconvenience God, never inconvenience Him. Remember the man in the parable was reluctant to get up. He's already in bed. His children are in bed. It's the middle of the night. Well, God's not like that, is He? Just, well, I, I, you know, I'm trying to get some sleep here. I don't want to be bothered with your prayers. That's not God, is it? 
And so our prayers never inconvenience Him. He invites us to pray at all times. And we manifest our faith in God in our prayers, our confidence in Him. We can depend on Him and we can ask and He will answer. Well, I want to look at one other parable this evening. Now, I've already been warned to understand that we begin a study of the parables next week. And so I'm not going to talk about any more than this one tonight. And I looked and I think this particular parable is scheduled to be discussed in September. And so maybe by that time you'll forget everything that I'll have to say about it tonight. But we're going to look at the prayers of the Pharisee and the publican, or the tax collector, in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Let's just note a couple of observations about parables. Parables are often short stories told by Jesus to convey an important spiritual message. They're sort of unique to Jesus. You don't find parables in the Old Testament. Maybe Nathan's story that he tells David is like a parable in some ways, but it's sort of a, a, a new and unique uh, method of teaching, the, the, the parables of Jesus. And usually they're, they're short stories that communicate a, a message. Now, parables are not always stories. In Luke chapter 5, verse 36, it says, He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. So that's described as a parable. It's not a story, but it's sort of a figurative way of expressing an idea or communicating a message. Each parable usually communicates a primary message. So I think in, in, in the parables, there, there's a primary message that's being communicated. Sometimes that message is, is specified, it's stated explicitly. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So he tells us the purpose of that parable. But often there are secondary or supporting truths that we might find in the parable. Now, a good illustration of that is the parable of the prodigal son. And so you remember the prodigal son is told for a purpose. Uh, uh, all, all the tax collectors, in this uh, Luke 15 verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him to listen to him, but both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And, and because of that, Jesus tells these three parables in answer to their criticism. And so the parable of the prodigal son talks about a son who takes his inheritance, goes into a far country, spends it all in riotous living, eventually wants to come back, and his brother grumbles about it. But the father accepts him and says to the son, you ought to rejoice with us. There's a primary message, but there's a lot of supporting messages and uh, principles in the prodigal son as well. The patience of God, the love of God, our free will, sin leads to ruin, repentance. I remember one time, maybe in my younger days of preaching, I had a sermon, I think it was called 25 Lessons from the Parable of the Prodigal Son. <laughs> that was, uh, I don't think that was a series, I think that was just one, one sermon. Well, there are not 25 primary messages in the story of the prodigal son. There's one primary message, there's a lot of supporting truth that can be drawn out as well. We don't want to miss the primary point in looking at the supporting points. And so let's look at uh, the parable of uh, the two men that go to the temple of, to pray in Luke chapter 18. We'll just read through it, it's short. 
He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. There's the purpose of the parable. He's telling you what the point is there. He's, he's going to respond to these people who trust in themselves that they're righteous. We'd call them self-righteous people. And they view others with contempt. They look down their nose at, oh, you know what I am. I'm righteous, you're not. And they have contempt for, for them. And so Jesus is going to address that problem with this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus comments on that in verse 14. I'll tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so he's teaching this parable or telling this parable in view of those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and view others with contempt. And what he says is, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But you need, you humble yourself, God will exalt you. And so don't Trust in yourself. Don't exalt yourself on the basis of your own righteous deeds. You need to humble yourself if you want to be justified by God. The story revolves around two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were a sect of the Jews known for their strictness and their piety. I think at least initially their primary interest was to be holy by keeping God's command. But in their desire to be holy, they lost their way. They not only accepted the scriptures, what was written as God's law, but they also accepted a number of traditions that had, been, that had developed through the years. They believed these traditions had been revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. And instead of being written down and passed along, they were simply passed along orally. And so through the years, these traditions would pass from one generation orally. But they were just as much the Word of God and just as binding as the written law itself. Sometimes the way you hear the body of tradition described is as a fence around the law. The, 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 the body of tradition is a fence around the law. Now, what, what do you put a fence around your yard for? Well, you want to keep in the yard what is good, what you want to keep in. And you want to keep out of the yard what's bad. And so you got a little dog, you want, to, you want him in the yard. You want him to stay in the yard. You put a fence around the yard so he can't get out of the yard. And so we put a fence around the law well, that we stay within the law. We don't get outside the law. And then we keep bad influences out of the yard or out of the law, so to speak. And so they kept the law, or tried to, and they kept the tradition. And they had a low opinion of those who did not measure up to their standard of holiness. And so if you don't measure up to our standard, well, you're a sinner. And they looked at those people with contempt. They separated themselves from such people. And remember, they criticized Jesus for his association with them. He's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. So these are people that didn't accept the traditions of the Pharisees and the lifestyle of the Pharisee and didn't measure up to their standard of righteousness. And Jesus associated with them, not to approve of their bad behavior, but in an effort to, to reach them, to bring them to repentance. And so they had contempt for those who didn't live as they did. 
Today, the term Pharisee is a pejorative. It's an insult. And every now and then, people will call us Pharisees. Maybe you've been called a Pharisee. But at the time, they were highly respected by many of the Jews. Now, Jesus criticizes them sharply for a number of different reasons. They did not do what they required of others. They maintained a superficial holiness while being corrupt inwardly. They strained out gnats while swallowing camels. And so they concentrated on the details of the law and obedience while neglecting the fundamental principles of the law. They set aside God's law to keep their tradition. They were lovers of money, and here, of course, they're self-righteous. Now, the other character in the parable is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors collected taxes for the Roman government. And so here's a Jew in collaboration with the Romans. Now, the Romans are occupying Israel, and and, uh, they're uh, governing Israel against the will of many of the Jews. And so here's a Jewish man. He's collaborator with the Romans. He's working in connection with them. And so because of their association, they are resented. Tax collectors often cheated people by collecting more taxes than was required. Sometimes they became quite wealthy. I met some people one time at another congregation I was visiting. and, And so just a couple of people were there. I think it must have been on a Wednesday night. Or it could have been a Sunday evening, I suppose. And I said, oh, are you members of the congregation here? I said, no, no, we're, we're just visiting. We're here for work. Oh, okay, well, well, what kind of work do you do? And, well, we, we work for the government. And, and the way they said it just kind of made me think. And I asked, oh, you work for the IRS, huh? Well, well, yeah, yeah. I, I wondered if they had been trained to kind of be evasive. And, and, and say, well, I work for the government. Maybe, maybe we're satisfied with that because, you know, if you work for the IRS, they're going to throw a party for you, aren't they? <laughs> and so that's the tax collector. Nobody likes the tax collector. Here, here's a publican, a tax collector, and a Pharisee. Here's a person that people look at with contempt. They don't like him. And here's a Pharisee, sort of the paragon of virtue. So those are the two characters in the parable. The action of the parable involves the two men going to the temple to pray. And the content of each man's prayer is given. Now there are regular hours of prayer during the day in Jerusalem uh, among the Jews. Remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so there would be a lot of people going to the temple, kind of streaming to the temple, and you could see people praying there. Well, there's a guy praying over there. There's somebody over here. There's somebody maybe right here next to me. And you might even be able to hear what they're praying. And so these, these people are at the temple praying, perhaps, one of these hours of prayer. Notice that the Pharisee stands and prays with himself. I've always thought that was an interesting uh, description. He, he prays for it with himself. Now, the content of the prayer, in the content of the prayer, he says, God, I thank you. So in his prayer, he addresses God. But he's not really addressing God, is he? You know? Jesus says he's praying with himself. He's commending himself. He's congratulating himself. He's really talking to himself. I'm glad I'm I'm a good person. I'm glad I'm better than most. He really even goes beyond what the law requires. I I fast twice a week. Give tithes of all that I get. 
I'm doing great things, and I do them wonderfully well. And because he does them so well, he has a low opinion of those who don't measure up to his standard. When he compares himself to others, he concludes that he is superior to others and is justified by his own righteous deeds. On the other hand, the tax collector lowers his eyes. He says, uh, I think he, he was afar a off, a distance away, verse 13, standing some distance away, lowers his eyes, confesses his sin, expresses his reliance on God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee manifests his pride and self-reliance. The tax collector expresses his humility and his dependence. And so God justifies the tax collector, not the Pharisee. That is, God considers the publican, the tax collector, to be right in his eyes, not the Pharisee. I, I just imagine that would be shocking to some people that heard it. This publican, this tax collector, uh, he went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Well, as I said a moment ago, the, the parable is not primarily about prayer, but it involves prayer. And we can learn a couple of things about prayer from the parable. And just want to mention a couple. Prayer is a great blessing, but sometimes it can be misused. The Pharisee misused prayer, didn't he? And he prays. He even addresses God. God, I thank you. <laughs> he even, at least on the surface, seems to be thankful to God. But he uses prayer to affirm his high opinion of himself. He seems to give thanks to God, but, but he's not doing that at all, is he? Not, not really. He's congratulating himself. Look at how great I am. Yeah, yeah, I am pretty great. You know? And so he's misusing prayer. Instead of sincerely thanking God or expressing his dependence on God or asking God to supply some need that he has, he's really thinking about himself and his own greatness. James also talks about how prayer might be misused. James chapter 4 and uh, verse 2, he says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, you're praying, you're asking, but you're misusing prayer. You're asking with wrong motives. You're asking God to give you something, but it's not something you need and you're depending on God to, to provide it for you. You just want to spend it in your own pleasure. It's interesting here in James chapter 4 and verse 3 where he says that you may spend it on your pleasures. That, that word spend it is the same word that we find in Luke 15 and verse 14 in the parable of the prodigal son where it says of him he when he had spent everything. It's the idea of waste. He's wasted it all. He spent it freely. And so you want God to supply you things so you can spend it. You can waste it. You can just live lavishly, luxuriously, and so forth. Now contrast this with a few prayers from Scripture. In, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses talks about the time, the, the golden calf, and and uh, the, how Israel worshipped the golden calf. And God had determined, I'm just going to destroy this people, Moses, and I'll, I'll start over with you, and I'll develop from you a great nation. And Moses intercedes for the people and appeals to God not to do that. 
And so verse 25 of Deuteronomy 29, uh, 9 says, I fell down before the Lord the forty days and nights, which I did, because the Lord had said He would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people, or at their wickedness, or their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which He had promised them, and because He hated them, He's brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have bought, uh, brought out with your great power and your outstretched arm. And so Moses in the prayer is not so much concerned with himself or with the people. It's God's reputation. If you bring these people out and you, and you slaughter them or have them die in the wilderness, people are going to say some things about you that are not right. And so his prayer is not self-centered. It's not even the people-centered. It's God-centered. His concern is about God in his prayer. Look at another example of that in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Now Daniel chapter 9 contains a long prayer, a long confession of sin uh, by, uh, by Daniel, of course. Verse 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, uh, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandment and ordinances. And, and he goes on and speaks at length about that. And then in verse 17 he says this, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of Your servant, to a supplication, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we're not presenting our supplication before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, and do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So his concern is not so much for himself or even the people, but do you, I'm calling on you to act for your name, you know, for your reputation, for your name's sake. So we are invited to make requests concerning personal needs, of course. Indicated that numerous times. But it is worth asking, isn't it? Are my prayers self-centered or others-centered? Are my prayers self-centered or God-centered? <laughs> why am I praying and why am I asking God to provide these things for me? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to supply our needs. The publican did it in this prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. In the model prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between asking God to supply our needs because we depend on Him and we acknowledge that He is the source of all our, all our needs, or not, and to supply all our needs. There's a difference in that and asking God for something so that we might spend it on our own pleasure. And so prayer is a great blessing, but it can be misused. Let's make sure that we are using this great blessing in the appropriate way. And finally, last point I'll make tonight is that it is taken from the nature 
of the tax collector's prayer. Simple, sincere, humble, no pretense, not verbose. <laughs> not a lot of words there, are there? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And so it's very simple, very straightforward. It's in contrast to those who thought that they would be heard for their many words. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. And Jesus criticized some who make long prayers for appearances sake. The prayer of the tax collector is not filled with pompous piety or lofty liturgical language. It's just simple, isn't it? Simp the simple words of a humble man beats his breast, does, he won't lift up his eyes to heaven, be merciful to me, a sinner. In that way, it's very much like the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Simple words, straightforward, not a lot of eloquent language there, just common everyday uh, vocabulary. It's even more simple in Luke's account. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we, all, we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. The prayers of Jesus are simple themselves. We're going to look at some of those eventually. But, but they're simple prayers. They're not... John 17 is, is a long prayer, but most of Jesus' prayers are rather simple. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so there's no need for us to le learn a special prayer language a special prayer vocabulary, highly liturgical language. We're taught to pray simply, pray in our own words, pray sincerely. God, I believe this particular parable shows us, would much prefer the simple, sincere prayer of the humble rather than the eloquent prayer of the self-centered. And so when we pray, humble ourselves, Express ourselves in simple terms. Our Father, help me. <laughs> I think that's good advice. I've, I've, I've talked about that before. I heard a preacher one time say, you know, if, you, if you're not quite sure what to pray for, just pray this prayer. Father, help me. And so I think that's, that's good. Just help me. Very simple, straightforward. Father, forgive me. Father, be with me. Father, grant me. Very simple, straightforward. God would much rather prefer that than uh, the eloquent prayer of the self-righteous as we see in this, in this parable. Well, just a couple of points here from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a great blessing. It can be misused, though. It, and simple, sincere prayers of the humble are often the most effective. And so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to come together and to worship together and sing together and pray together and just be together with one another and encourage each other as we go through life. 
as we head into a new week. Father, we pray that we've been attentive today and that we have been encouraged and we've been uplifted, that in some way we've been strengthened and we're better prepared as a result of what we've done today for facing the challenges of the coming week than we would have been if we had not been here. Father, we're so thankful for this blessing of prayer. What a wonderful blessing it is. Help us, Father, to do it the very best we can. Help us to pray often. Help us to be humble and sincere and express our dependence upon you. Help us to express our gratitude and thanksgiving. Help us not to be so self-centered, Father. Help us to be others-centered in our prayers. And especially, Father, may we, uh, above all things, uh, want you to be glorified and honored through the things that we pray for and ask for. Father, we ask you to go with us through this week and strengthen us. Give us the wherewithal we need to be faithful to you no matter what comes our way. We're thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus, came and shed his blood on the cross to atone for our sin. And it's through that blood that we have access to you and we may come to you through this avenue of prayer. And we pray, Father, that we will faithfully walk in his steps. We pray these things in his name. Amen.